Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvest, who does that young woman belong to? The overseers replied, she is a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in other field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the woman. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water of jars the men have filled. And this she bowed with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you richly be rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under the, whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servants, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, she offered her, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't re her. He even out put he even pulled out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley and she gathered and amounted to about an F Epha. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Amen. Go, Bailey. Thank you so much, Bailey. You are a huge encouragement to me. Well, hey, welcome, everybody. We're in chapter two, as you may have guessed, in the book of Ruth. Today, we're going to have a front row seat as Ruth and Boaz meet as they begin to develop a relationship that is one day going to lead uh, toward marriage. And uh, so we're going to pull some principles out of, out of today's story, not just for those of you who may be getting married, but for those of you who have relationships of any kind. So, you know, we could be talking about a, just a relationship, a friendship, a courtship, a battleship, which could be an analogy, honestly, for some of our marriages right now, right? My point is that any ship that you have uh, today is really going to be helpful, you know, for that. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about uh, these principles is that we're pulling them from the Word of God. And when it comes to relationships, the Word of God is the gold standard, 
and so some of us are actually applying principles maybe that we picked up other places to our relationships. And in fact, those principles are helping to erode relationships instead of build them. Maybe principles that we picked up uh, from a movie or from a friend who's just as confused as I am about relationships. Maybe we picked up these principles from a bar or, uh, you know, from a, a mentor or somewhere other than the Word of God. And so I just want to um, make it clear that, uh, man, you know, we want to really pay attention today because, again, these are from the Word of God. So let me give you one principle that's probably eroding your relationships. You ready? I'm right, and I never should have to apologize. Well, I would just say good luck with that. You know, uh, you'll get desperate enough at some point. You blow through enough relationships that uh, you'll have a change of heart about that one. But I do want to start with dating because that's the context for Ruth and Boaz. Now, how many of you would agree that dating can be kind of awkward? Sure, yeah. Uh, it's a little bit like a job interview, right? You kind of, you don't know what to wear. You're not sure what to say. And maybe the most difficult part of dating way back when, when I used to do it, was like, what do you do at the end of a date? Like, you don't want to shake hands, right? That's weird. I mean, do you, do you fist bump? Do you do the Christian side hug kind of thing? Like, how do you, how do you end a date? Do you peck them on the cheek? Just awkward, right? Well, and back when I used to date, it was even more awkward because you actually had to all the time talk to people either face-to-face -face or over the phone. I mean, you couldn't do it online. You couldn't text one another. You actually had to talk, you know, face-to-face, and as it comes to online and online dating, sometimes people will ask me, they'll say, well, you know, pastor, as you know, how do you feel? What do you think about online dating? And I would say two things. I would say, number one, I've seen some really incredible couples come together, build a relationship that led to marriage, and they started that relationship online. So I think it can be a really, really good thing. I think if there was uh, a concern that I had or any type of downside about it, it might be that I think it can sometimes train us to shop for people in the same way that we might shop for clothing or a car. In other words, you know, I have this list in my head of what I want, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through, I'm going to discard, you know, relationship after relationship until, you know, I find this person that has all these things I want on my list. And so people can kind of become a commodity that we discard too quickly simply because they don't match up very well with this list. And so here's my principle for today. My principle is this, that all of us in the room are shopping for the type of person that we want, whether it's a friendship relationship, whether it's a dating relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship. We're all shopping, right, aren't we, for the kind of person that we want. And so I want to talk about that, and here's why. Because maybe, just maybe, the kind of person that we want isn't the kind of person that God knows that we need. 
So, and make no mistake, whether you've written down a list or not, especially if you're uh, pre-marriage or thinking about marriage or hoping to get married one day, whether you've actually written down a list or not, you do still have one, right? It's important to just own that. And so I think what's, uh, what happens so often, right, when we meet people is we have in our minds what we want this relationship to look like, all these character qualities, all these uh, things that we expect from this person we're going to build a relationship with. And so the first word of advice that I would give is whatever list you have, whatever list that may look like, even if it's not written, I want to challenge you, be willing to rip that list up. The truth about some of us is we're more in love with our list than we are a person. And the Bible actually has a word for that. Anytime that we love something more than others or more than we love God, the Bible actually calls that idolatry. And for some of us, that's what this list is. I would beg, I would argue that some of you are married. Maybe you've even been married for a long time and you've never put away your list. And so, so many of the conversations you have with your husband or you have with your wife come in all the ways they don't measure up to this imaginary list that you have in your head. And so what can actually happen is this list can keep us from loving a real person right in front of us that I'm in a real relationship with. It can keep us from loving them well, right? And so some of us just need to tear up that list and we need to trust that God is bigger than my list or at least... Maybe it's too much for me to ask you to completely discard the list, but what if I just asked you to do this? What if I just asked you to be willing, to be willing to adopt a different list based not on what you got from your friends in a bar, not a principle that you picked up in a movie, not a principle that you picked up from a friend who's just as clueless about relationships as you are, but be willing to rewrite that list in light of the Word of God. Because again, when it comes to the Bible, it is the gold standard for relationships. And I just don't want us to lose sight of that. And then the final thing I would say about that list that we're all prone uh, to write down or to keep in our head is this. Listen, I want to shift your focus. Instead of focusing on finding a person that has all those qualities you would dream of, Why don't you focus on becoming that kind of person instead? In other words, as we write these lists, we should be willing to ask ourselves, right? Do I have these qualities? And here's why this matters so much, because like tends to attract like. And so if you hope to attract somebody with those qualities, the best way to do that is to be that kind of person yourself and to ask the question, all right, how well do I perform on this list? And I can't control who or when somebody else is going to come into my life, but I can control how I match up and how I'm doing as it relates to that list. 
And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at four principles from Ruth chapter 2. Now, normally when we teach through the Bible, we teach through it verse by verse. But there's about 20 verses here. There's just too many. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out four principles from this story uh, as we think about relationships and how to build or maintain or uh, keep them. And so you're ready? Okay, now, we were already told when we started uh, Ruth chapter 2 last week that Boaz, uh, was a, was, he was a man of standing. Here's what that means. That means that Boaz was a man of character. He was a man of integrity. It means that if he told someone he was going to do something, he did it. It means if he told someone he wasn't going to do something, he didn't do it. It means that Boaz could be trusted. Uh, it means that he had a strong internal compass and that his compass always pointed true north when it came to things like character and integrity. And the reason for that was that um, being a man of standing also meant that Boaz was a man of faith. He had a growing relationship with God. He was in that relationship. He took it seriously and he tried to live out of that. And because of his integrity, because of his character, it also means that God blessed him with property. God gave him property. He was a land owner. And what we're going to notice here is that as he's getting to know Ruth, he asks her questions about her character. That's important to him as well. And so the first thing we're going to see is that Boaz, not only was he a man of character, but he's also seeking character in those that he would get to know. And I hope you're going to see this morning, each of our points starts with a C. Now, it's always way more spiritual when the pastor can alliterate something and use the same letter for each point. So you're welcome. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you four C's for relationships. And again, not just a dating relationship, but any of your relationship. So what we're going to see is they're going to seek character. They're going to seek a connection. They're going to seek, uh, they're going to be considerate of one another. And they're going to seek confirmation from people that know them and love them. So here in chapter 2, uh, Ruth has found her way. By the way, she's new in town. She's an immigrant. She doesn't know anybody. She's come into Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and they don't have a place to stay. They don't have a place to live, nor do they know where their next meal is going to come from. So uh, Ruth finds her way into a field. We talked about this last week. Just so happens, right, the providence of God, it just so happens she found herself gleaning in a field owned by a man named Boaz. Now, gleaning, you can read about that in the law in Leviticus 19. Here's what gleaning was. Uh, God had commanded the Israelites to be sloppy farmers on purpose, he had said, look, as you're going and you're, you're working your way through your fields, I want you to drop a little food here. I want you to throw a little food over your shoulder. I want you to be sloppy on purpose so that people who don't own land, 
or people who are struggling to make ends meet so that they can come along behind you and pick up what you're purposefully and intentionally leaving behind. So this is kind of God's way of caring for those who didn't have property or who didn't have uh, land. And so Ruth is doing that. Being an immigrant, being new in town, she's harvesting, she's gleaning or picking up the leftover food behind these harvesters. And she has a banner day. We'll talk about that in a minute. But verse uh, 10 of Ruth 2 says this. It says that um, she bowed down, so she meets Boaz. She's been working in his field all day. And when she meets him, she bowed down with her face to the ground and asked him, Boaz, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you take notice of me, a foreigner? And we're going to see the first thing he's going to tell her is, well, I'm I'm doing this, uh, Ruth, because I heard about your character. Look what he says. He says, I've been told all about, essentially, your character, all about what you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi, since the death of her husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland in order to be loyal to her. So he's saying, so the first thing I know about Ruth is that you're loyal, and you're not just loyal when it's easy for you. You came to Bethlehem from Moab, not thinking you were going to have a better life. That's why most immigrants go where they're going, right? They go for a better life. But that wasn't what Ruth was doing. She knew, she believed her life was going to be worse in Bethlehem, but she was so loyal to her grant to her uh, mother-in-law. She said, "Look, I'm going to do the right thing, even when it's hard for me." That's character, friends. That's integrity. I'm going to do the right thing even when it costs me something. And so this is what he's saying to her, right? He's just, and he just goes on. He says, look, I also heard that you stopped worshiping the false god Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and you, you had a conversion experience. You said, no, I'm only going to worship the god of Israel. Uh, and so, Ruth, I just love that. And here's what else he says. He, he doesn't say it in these words, but in this passage, he essentially says this. He says, and I've noticed something else about you, Ruth. You're a hard worker. Like, you're not a victim, Like you're not sitting back waiting on someone to come and rescue you. Like, you know, you're you're not looking for a handout. You got up early, you showed up in the field, you worked in the field in the heat of the day. I've noticed that you're a conscientious person, he would say. Really what he's saying is I noticed that you have godly character. You're not just saying that you're a follower of the one true God, but you actually have it. And so let me just pause here. Let me just ask you a very, very serious question. And the question is this, are you a person of character? Can other people trust you? to do the things that you say you will do and to not do the things that you say you will do. Are you a genuine disciple, follower of Christ? 
Because let me tell you, I've met my fair share of people that will hop from bar to bar to bar and bed to bed to bed, and then they're still pretty committed to showing up at church on Sunday. And which kind of person are you? You know, and they'll ask God to bless them all along the way. You know, so are you a person of spiritual character? Well, let me tell you why I'm asking this question and why this matters so much. It is impossible, friends, to build a lifestyle of righteousness on a foundation of sin. It's just impossible. If you want to have a godly life later, you want to start that by living a godly and a righteous life now. If you want a godly marriage in the future, it's really wise to seek uh, that in your present and to seek the opinions of others as it relates to that. So well, you go, okay, well, pastor, what does that mean exactly? How do you get character? Well, we've talked about this already. If the word of God is God's gold standard, are you in God's word regularly? Like, are you learning from God? You know, we would say a disciple is three things. We would say that the call that Jesus issues to discipleship is also the definition in Matthew 4, 19, right? Jesus said, uh, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That means a disciple is three things. First, a disciple is someone who's following after Jesus. When I say following after Jesus, I mean he's their um, uh, he's their uh, rabbi. They're, he's their teacher. They're doing the things every day that he asks them to do. The second thing we see here is Jesus says, as you follow me, I'm going to make you something. That tells us the second thing about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means that um, I'm being shaped and changed by him. I'm not static. I'm not staying the same. That he is making me something. He's transforming my lives, my life or your life. He's making me a better husband. He's making you a better wife. He's making you a better parent, a better uh, employer, a better coworker, a better friend. You're becoming something that is bigger and better than what you are right now. And then thirdly, he said, I'm going to make you into what? Fishers of men. So we know that a disciple is someone who's on mission with Jesus. They're committed to lifting him, him up in their life, not only following him and obeying him, but making sure that they're lifting him up to other people for what he can do for them. Are you that kind of person? Or are you just showing up for church, maybe online or on Sunday morning? Are you a person of spiritual integrity and spiritual character? I mean, are you like just going to church or are you being the church, serving in the church? Do you have a ministry in the church? This is the kind of things that I'm talking about, see? And Look, you know, here's the, here's the deal when it comes to uh, character. Listen, you can't be in a relationship. You can't love well someone that you can't trust. Parents, anytime our children ask us, hey, mommy, why is it wrong to lie? Why does God tell us not to lie? You should never go back to the Ten Commandments. Sure, the Ten Commandments are there, but the Ten Commandments aren't our mail, okay? Here's the bigger reason that you should tell your children it's wrong to lie. Honey, because God 
uh, loves relationships. Relationships in the kingdom of God are the central thing, and lying undermines the thing that God values most. It undermines relationships. That's why lying is wrong, honey. That's the kind of that's the kind of script that we should be following with our children as it relates to character. See, we want to train our kids. We, we want to send our kids out equipped and prepared to have good, healthy relationships with other people. And simply put, you cannot do that. You cannot do that without character because you can't love someone that you can't trust. So character is number one. And then what we're going to see in this story today is the second thing, that Boaz is going to explore a connection with Ruth. He's going to look for a connection. In fact, here's what he says. He says, he says, hey, Ruth, do you want to have some lunch? And it's actually not even a private lunch. He doesn't say, hey, Ruth, why don't you come over to my place and we'll binge some Netflix alone together, right? He makes sure this lunch, as they're getting to know one another, they're going to have that in a public place. They're going to have that lunch in front of the other harvesters. They're not going to put themselves in a position, right, where they're tempted beyond anything that would be right or true. In fact, we see this in verse 14. Here's what the text says. At mealtime, Boaz said, why don't you come over here? Let's have some lunch together. Have some bread and dip it in the wine and the, and the vinegar. And so when she sat down with the harvesters, see, they're not alone, right? He offered her uh, some roasted grain. And I love this part. It says that she ate all she wanted and she had some leftover. So Ruth didn't say, oh, no, thank you. I'll just have a salad. I'm not, a, I'm not a big eater, right? No, she ate all she wanted. She's just putting it out there. She's just being real. She's just being herself. She's not trying to be somebody that she isn't. And they're establishing a connection over a lunch. You might say in a, in a crowded cafe, not at home alone, right? And I think that's really, really important. And the point is that they're making time to explore a connection. I mean, was Boaz busy? Sure. He had fields to harvest. He had a business to maintain, right? But yet he made time for that connection, um, so I have a question. I'll start with husbands. Husbands, are you dating your wife? Wives, are you uh, making a connection with your husband? Like, like here's the thing. I think there's this idea among young people that when they get married, that like connection is just going to magically happen and they don't have to work. They don't have to talk. They don't have to work at it. They don't, they can quit dating one another. They can quit affirming one another. They can quit all the things that they did when they were dating. And friends, the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. And this used to blow me away when I would hear stories about this. Now I've been married almost 40 years now, so I get this a little more, but I used to hear stories about people that have been married 35 or 40 or 45 
five years, and then they get a divorce. You ever heard one of those stories, and you kind of want to go, like, why bother? Like, you've already been together all that time. Like, what's it matter? And I'll tell you how that happens. It happens because a couple gets busy together raising children, And then when those children leave, that husband and that wife, they look at each other because they've not made any time for one another over the last 20 years. And they don't know each other anymore because they quit dating. They quit conversating. That's not a word. I just made that up. Again, you're welcome. See, they quit all that. They quit looking for ways to connect emotionally And spiritually, and when you're in a marriage, friends, you have to fight for that emotional and spiritual connection. It has to be maintained. It has to be worked at. It has to be worked for. It does not, I repeat, it does not come naturally. So are you making time in your marriage for connection? And if you're not, I would just plead with you, start. Begin to do that, see. Um, Because if you're not careful, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to feel like strangers. You know, you're going to feel like business partners. I mean, maybe you raised kids successfully together. Maybe you even built a business together. But you're going to wake up one morning and you're going to go, I don't even know who you are anymore. Because people... We all, friends, listen, here's another myth I need to bust. There's another myth that says, well, when you're in your 20s, you quit growing and you quit changing. You're pretty much who you're going to be. Nothing could be further from the truth. You, 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 both of you are going to keep growing, and you're either going to grow congruently or even more together, or you're going to grow further and further apart. But everybody is always changing and growing through every decade of life. As new challenges hit you, as you uh, come into new, as you meet new people and all that, you're always growing and changing. And that's what makes this connection piece so, so vital. Uh, So then the third thing we're going to notice, the third principle we're going to pull out of this story is Boaz begins, really you see it on both sides with both Ruth and Boaz. They begin, and this word is so important, with great consideration of one another. So listen, it is so clear in chapter 2 that Boaz's intention is just to bless Ruth, just to bless her, just to bless her, just to bless her, to pump her so full of blessing, she doesn't, you know, she's just mind-blowing, right? And so let me just walk through how he wants to do that with her. Look at verse 15. So she's working in the field. She's picking up the leftovers. She's a brand new immigrant in town. She didn't come for a better life. She came expecting a worse life. And Boaz notices that. And here's what he says to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. In other words, hey, don't say things to her like, hey, you should leave some for somebody else. Or, hey, you're picking up a lot there. You should probably slow it down a little bit. He says, no, don't say anything like that to to her let her let her pick up as much as she wants he says even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her 
So what do we know about this statement? Well, we already said that according to Leviticus 19, he was required by the law to leave some behind. But that's not what Boaz is doing here. He's going way beyond the law, and he's moving into the realm of grace. And I'll show you how. Look at the uh, look at the, the next verse, verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley that she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah. Say ephah. That's just fun to say, isn't it? Just rolls off the tongue. An ephah is a Hebrew word that means a whole lot of barley. A whole lot of barley. In fact, an ephah was two weeks worth of work. It was two weeks of wages that she was able to pick up in a single day. So Boaz, he just wanted to bless her. He just wanted to be kind to her. And he wasn't asking her for anything in return. And isn't it so true, husbands and wives, that so often we want to bless our mates. We do. We want to bless them. But then we want them to turn around and bless us right back, right? Oh, come on. Don't look at me like I'm the only one in the room. I know some of you. Yeah, we, we all do that, right? We want to bless, we want to do a good thing, but then we expect, hey, you know, hey, if you scratch my back, okay, well, then I'll, I'll scratch your back. And Boaz isn't doing that here. In his consideration, he's going way beyond law and deep into grace, deep into grace. And, and, and if you're going to keep a relationship, if you have relationships, it doesn't matter whether it's a friendship, it doesn't matter if it's a courtship, it doesn't matter if it's a marriage or even a relationship at work. If you desire to bless your friends, if you desire to bless your co-workers, listen, they're going to want to be in a relationship with you and you're never going to have to demand a blessing back. You know why? Because they're going to love you so much. They're going to want to be around you so much that they will want to bless you back without you ever having to say a word about it. Just because your posture toward them is, I want God to do good things in your life. I want God to do good things for you. See? So, if you have a roommate, if you're here and you're in a relationship with a roommate, what are you doing every day to get up and go, how can I bless that roommate today? If you have a classmate, somebody you go to school with that you care about, that you're building a friendship with, why don't you get up and ask yourself, how can I bless that relationship today? How can I bless them today? If you're married and in a relationship with a husband or a wife, why don't you get up and go, okay, how can I bless her today? How can I bless him today? Without expecting anything in return. That's grace. That's way beyond the law. That's way beyond the command to simply love one another. You've waded into the territory of God's grace at that point. And friends, that's a beautiful, beautiful place to be and to live. And it's an incredible place to build relationships in. 
So let me just ask you again, what are you doing to bless the people in your life? What consideration are you showing? And then the fourth thing that I absolutely love um, about this story is uh, that they're seeking confirmation about this relationship from people that they know and that they trust. So look what happens. Ruth comes home from the field and she shows her this ephah of barley. We already said an ephah of barley is a whole lot of barley, right? And her mother-in-law looks at all that barley and said, whose field did you glean in today? And Ruth says, well, you're never going to believe it. It was a man named Boaz. And Naomi says, wait, Boaz? I know Boaz. He's a distant relative of ours. You've got to be kidding me. You ended up in his field. And she says, indeed, I did, right? And so essentially, her mother-in-law is saying, you know, look, whoever that guy is that would give you that much barley, let you take that much barley, I like him. Like, whoever did this, he is a good man. He is an honorable man. He is a godly man. And here's what we know about Naomi. We know that Naomi loved Ruth. See, in chapter 1, she prayed for Ruth. And the way she prayed for Ruth was that one day God would bring Ruth a godly husband, a mate that would tend to her needs. So she's going to be truthful with Ruth, right? And I would just say this, the best thing you can do if you're in a dating relationship with somebody is just pay attention. Like, pay attention. Ask your friends, hey, what do you think of this guy? I know some of you want to choke on this. Ask your parents. <laughs> I know, I know. Ask your parents, what do you think of this guy? You know why I say that? Because your parents, just like Naomi loved Ruth, your parents love you. They want the best for you. So be willing to look for confirmation from those that, uh, that you love. Now, uh, now I got to be honest. Okay, because here's what could happen when you start going and you're seeking confirmation, right? You know, uh, look, you find out, look, my mama doesn't like him. My dad doesn't like him. My brother doesn't like him. My best friend doesn't like him. My life group doesn't like him. Shoot, my dog doesn't even like him. But, but we're in this intimate relationship together. Now, here's what Proverbs chapter 5 says. Proverbs chapter 5 says, literally, that sex is intoxicating. So that means if you're in an intimate relationship, in a sexual relationship with someone that you're not married to, that means you're drunk. You're intoxicated by that. And so if people outside your relationship are speaking some negative things into that, and, but you're relying on that intimacy, that, that physical relationship to keep you together, well, you're drunk and you got to face that. You have to face that. And that means you need to be more willing to listen to that confirmation that, or even that, hey, you know what? I have some concerns. And here's some other things you can do. If you're in a dating relationship or even looking for a good, good friend, look at how they treat their mom. Look at how they talk about, like, do they, do they smile and greet other people warmly and then talk about them like dogs behind their back? 
Friends, that's not a good trait. That's not character that we're talking about. Be mindful of these things. How does she she treat her dad? How does she talk to her dad? Because the way she talks to her dad today is the way she will talk to you tomorrow if God keeps, you know, stirring this thing up. I mean, just, we just have to be mindful of these things and looking for that confirmation. And it doesn't even have to be this massive family, right? It could be a life group. It could be a couple of good friends. Uh, it could be a mentor. It could be a prayer partner. But the, the point is that you just have this Christian community that's speaking into your life and into your relationships because they love you. Not because they're trying to get all up in your business. They just care about you. And they want good things for you and good things for your life. So, you know, Naomi says, um, who did this? And Ruth says, well, his name is Boaz. And Naomi's like, he's a relative of ours. Look at verse 20. Look at how she articulates from there. She says, he's kind of one of our guardian redeemers. Now, some versions say he's a kinsman redeemer. Others say he's a guardian redeemer. And I want to talk about what that is, because this is actually a huge theme in the book of Ruth. And we don't have these in our culture. In Ruth and Naomi's culture, they had these, but in our culture, we don't. And so it's very important to understand. A guardian redeemer, this is a person, usually the next closest relative or even a distant relative, um, who chooses to come in and provide for someone who's experienced a significant loss. And in this case, that would be Ruth, right? She lost her husband. She lost her father-in-law. She lost her brother-in-law. She certainly qualified. And so that's what a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer is. And here's what's so crazy. So the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer would be responsible for marrying this new wife, providing for her, making sure she's taken care of, making sure that she could have children to further her own legacy and her own line. Having children in that day was very, very important. Uh, And so a guardian redeemer would make sure that all of that was provided for. And here's what's so amazing to me. You know, he's not obligated. Boaz in this story is not obligated to Ruth. She's not a relative. She's from Moab for crying out loud. She calls herself a foreigner in this very passage. She calls herself that. He's not obligated to provide for her at all. But yet, Boaz, as we're going to see in this story, he's going to go further than the law requires. He's going to wade well into the territory of God's grace, and he's going to choose to give her everything. And this isn't just law. This is grace. And listen, here's what makes this so important. And we're going to tease this out throughout the rest of the series. Do you know what the New Testament says that Jesus' relationship with you and I is? He's your, he's my, he's our guardian redeemer. He is your kinsman redeemer. And that means that when you experience a loss, he moves in and he comforts and he provides 
and he draws close. And he does all the things that a guardian or a kinsman redeemer would do in that day. We benefit from all of that when we're in a relationship with Christ. It's such a beautiful thing to me that, uh, that Boaz becomes kind of this picture of what Christ does spiritually and even physically in our own lives. And it means that he is the one that we can call, right? When things get difficult or when we need to be found by someone or loved by someone. And I would just say a couple of things when it comes to Christ as our kinsman redeemer. First, there is no sin that's too big for the grace of God. There is no marriage that is too broken for God's healing. There is no relationship, no friendship that is beyond the restoration of God. And you, some of us, we need that hope today. We need to be able to live out of that hope, right? Um, so, so let me just ask you, as you're reflecting and praying on what, what we're looking at together today, are there any of you here, and let's this is church so we can be honest, are there any of you here and you would say, you know what, there's this relationship in my life and I'm just really struggling in it. We just, we need help. Like we're not well, that relationship is broken. Maybe I'm happy that it's broken. Maybe I'm happy that it's not. But let's just be honest, okay? All of us in the room, all of us, we're the product of broken relationships. I mean, even if we come from a family where our parents stayed together, you know, and, and it seems healthy, at least on the surface. I mean, because all of us lived at one time with a broken relationship with God, right? I mean, we, we know what it's like to live there apart from God without Christ, without hope. We're all the product of broken relationships. In my family, not only did my real mom die, but when my dad remarried uh, a woman, uh, he immediately divorced. We did the Brady Bunch thing for a while, and then all those relationships went sideways. I'm certainly a product of broken relationships. And, and if I were guessing, if I were betting, I would say that most of you are too. And that's why we need a Savior, a kinsman redeemer whose name is Christ. So if you're here this morning and there's a relationship that you're struggling with, would you just be willing just to raise your hand? Come on. Come on. It's a little better. Come on. I want to pray for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I lift up everybody in the room that had the courage to lift up their hands. God, I pray that whatever that relationship may look like, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a teacher, whether it's an employer, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a dating relationship, God, I just pray that you would give each of these men and women wisdom. I pray, God, that you would give them the strength and the heart and the desire to wade way beyond what the law might ask and well into the territory, Lord Jesus, of your grace and your mercy. Give each of us, give each of them a desire
to become a men and women of greater character, to do what we had, the hard work, the heavy lifting that we have to do to reestablish connection in that relationship. Uh, God, the ability to show great consideration, just this desire just to bless people, to bless people, to bless people. Oh God, would you put it in all of our hearts this morning to have an orientation that would desire to bless people without asking anything in return. And then God, for the few of us left, would you give us the courage to listen for confirmation from the people that love us most and the courage, Lord Jesus, to act when we're not getting the, conversa- the confirmation that we'd hope for. And so God, would you empower us? Would you equip us? Would you share your own mercy and grace with us that we might have that to graciously extend to others? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. God bless you. Thanks for coming and worshiping with us today. Hey, if you